Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Thank you for downloading this episode of New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book on some area of world sport, and we interview the author. This week, my guest is... Thank you for downloading this episode of New Books and Sports. I'm your host... Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book on some area of world sport, and we interview the author. This week, my guest is David Zhang, who is professor in the Department of Kinesiology at Towson University. Dave is a sports historian whose previous books include a study of sport and social change during the 1960s and a biography of Moses Fleetwood Walker the first black player in professional baseball who played in the 1880s before the racial ban was imposed in the sport. For this episode, we are discussing Dave's new book of personal history, I Wore Babe Ruth's Hat, Field Notes from a Life in Sports, published by the University of Illinois Press in 2015. As Dave explains in our interview, his book is a collection of essays based on personal stories he's been telling his students in decades of teaching sports history classes. Like all good stories that profs tell their students, some are funny, some are poignant, but they all help to illustrate larger lessons about how sport and changes in sport affect us as ordinary fans and sometime players. Dave's book is about the function that sport plays in our individual memories, as well as the role of sport in the larger society. It is a book that is both funny and full of insight. I had a great time interviewing Dave, and I think you'll enjoy his observations. Here is our interview. This week's guest on New Books and Sports is Dave Zhang. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, so since your your new book is something of a memoir, we're going to learn about you and your life in sports during the course of the interview. But uh, if you can start by giving us just a bit of introduction, say uh, where you're from, what led you into the academic study of sports, and uh, and perhaps a word about the, the teaching and writing that you've done in the past. Sure. I uh, was born and raised in Westchester, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb of Philadelphia. Uh, when I finished college in Ohio at Wittenberg, I went home with uh, not a clue as to what I was going to do. I ended up uh, collecting taxes for three years with the Internal Revenue Service, and I realized every day that I went in that this was not something that I could do until retirement. So I started thinking about what it was that I really enjoyed, and that was, of course, sports. Uh, so I 
moved across country and began a sports administration program at Arizona State. And while I was there, because I had been a political science major, I had to make up a number of uh, physical education credits, and one of those was a history of sport class. And the professor there, Robert Osterhout, was so compelling and interesting that I decided maybe this was what I also ought to be doing. So I picked up and moved back east and did a master's at Penn State and then the uh, doctoral program at the University of Maryland. Uh, I taught then for a few years at College Park, Maryland, until the budget ran out. I wasn't tenure track, so I uh, taught here and there for the next three or four years until uh, an opening came up at Towson, and I was fortunate enough to get that. So I am now in my 22nd year full-time at, at Towson and enjoy it very much. And you do most of your teaching in, in history of sport and most of your writing in history of sport, correct? Yes, although uh, I have occasionally taught a uh, an American Studies introduction class, and I also, uh, a few years ago, completed work on a documentary film that uh, examines the first uh, white band ever to headline the Apollo Theater's rhythm and blues shows back in the 1960s. So I I have been given a lot of latitude by chairs and deans <laughs> to pursue things that were only tangentially connected, but yeah. that were were really interesting to me. Yeah, yeah. So so your new book, I wore Babe Ruth's hat. As I said, it's it's something of a of a memoir, a collection of essays, and and I'll ask you this to start. This is not something that that sports historians or professors in kinesiology departments typically do is is write a memoir. So so what led you to write this book? Uh, that's a good question. I had, um, I had done traditional historical work and, um, I got into the habit in class of telling, uh, stories from my high school and college days that the students found not only amusing, but instructive. And when my schedule started uh, making it tougher to make trips down to the Library of Congress and to do traditional research, I thought, well, now's maybe the time to see if some of these stories also have enough of an academic uh, tilt to them to make it um, worth approaching a publisher. Uh, I've also been been very fortunate in getting uh, very supportive and good feedback about my writing over the years. And um, so when I strayed into sort of semi-memoirish pieces people were not put off by it um and i you know when i approached the university of illinois press with this they told me they did not publish memoir but they were willing to take a look at it and um it got very nice readers reports from historians so they decided they'd take a chance on it and i'm sure they're being rewarded now with sales of a hundred or so (laughs) Well, I'll say yes. It isn't. It isn't uh, uh, in the form of a traditional memoir. You do uh, your your stories are jumping off points to uh, to larger points about uh, sport and culture and sport and memory, which which we'll talk about. And so, yeah. So each of the chapters, which are built around anecdotes from your life, I found to be uh, uh, very rich. But that's an encouraging story because I do the same in, in teaching history. I 
I uh, give plenty of stories from my own experience to my students, so it's good to know that they might actually be worth something in the future. <laughs> yes, I think I think they could be. I'm I'm sort of hoping that um, others will take some of the same approaches. I at least in teaching at the undergraduate level over the years, I. I get kind of uh, wearied by the, you know, uh, journal readings and the other things yeah, that yeah. students uh, just, it's not that they can't understand it, they just don't feel a connection to it in the same way as when you tell them, for example, you know, I, I met Jackie Robinson and the funny circumstances under which I met Jackie Robinson and, and those sorts of things. Um, just connect for them in a much better way. Yeah, no, I agree. And and now that you say that, I think back to whatever subject in history I've taught, what, what typically resonates with students is, is when I uh, tell them about experience or places I've been or, or people I've met who are actually witnesses to uh, historical events, and they, they connect with that much more than they do with the assigned readings. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you about the title. I wore Babe Ruth's hat. So uh, so that comes from an essay in the middle of the book. But uh, I'll ask you to start to explain the story behind that. Well, um, it was originally going to be called Field Notes, and the university press thought that that was not marketable enough, and so they started coming up with some titles of their own that I thought were were probably not the best, so we we compromised and said, let's just lift the title from one of the chapters. Um, the I Wore Babe Ruth chapter, um, Babe Ruth's hat chapter, uh, comes from the time that I spent uh, working with the Babe Ruth Museum and actually did try on his hat one day, and it's uh, a look at the role of both artifacts and um, auxiliary people to our sports like mascots and you know so I'm asking what is the value of Babe Ruth's hat and foul balls and baseball cards and you know uh, the other sort of commercial uh, things that that sort of muddy up and clutter our sports experiences yeah. these days yeah and you have another great story in that chapter and the, the chapter could have easily been called I was the the Baltimore Raven when you describe <laughs> yeah. could you tell us that story <laughs> Well um uh, we have here a Towson the Towson Tiger and uh our Towson Tiger uh was in my classes and he went and tried out for uh to be Poe one of the three Ravens mascots and and got the job so he was the very first Poe and I always used to very kiddingly tell him I'm going to show up at the stadium one day, Greg, and, and I'm going to make you put me in that suit. Um, and so one day I went down and, and he actually agreed, although he was extremely ner- nervous about it, um, he agreed that between the first and second quarters we'd run back into the locker room and I would become Poe. Uh, so for one quarter of a Ravens-Kansas City Chiefs game, I, I went out on the field and tried to pretend that I was the Baltimore's uh, Ravens mascot, and it was a uh, much tougher job than I had envisioned. Um, and it also helped me uh, think about uh, why I am always so uh, sort of hostile towards mascots <laughs> and and others who I, I see them as just being um, over the top in terms of the 
all of the things that distract us from sport now. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I'll ask you what was what was so tiring about it because I remember you. you well, the head is very the head is very heavy, and it was also about ninety degrees that day, so it was also very hot, and the eye holes are not where you would like them to be. They're nowhere near your eyes, so you have to adjust to that. And uh, I was about six inches taller than Greg, which meant that the whole outfit um, was was perched atop me in a, in a way that it wasn't on him. Um, but then when once you're out on the field, you feel compelled to entertain. Mm-hmm. So you can't just walk up and down the sidelines. You have to, you know, flap your wings and knock over megaphones and and try to do what you think will make the crowd watch and it's only after you get out of the uniform later you realize nobody's watching you really you know one or one or two kids at a time um and it doesn't really matter so much what you do um as it matters just that you're there that yeah. you're part of this whole circus that's going on yeah 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 um and so i'll ask you as you mentioned uh before so that that chapter deals with artifacts and mascots and baseball cards and and so what is in in writing that chapter what did you find is the is the meaning of those objects in our in our sporting lives well i i think um in those of us who were lucky enough to be born uh, prior to, say, the 1980s, those artifacts were just the ways in which we built memories and connected to things which were not accessible to us. I was never going to really meet the Philadelphia Philly, uh, but if I could get an autographed picture in the mail or if I could get a baseball card, it was a way for me to feel actually connected. Uh, today, I don't think there's that same sense. They are, you know, they're commercial artifacts now. You buy them as investments or, um, you know, you try to get a complete set so that it will be more valuable rather than, you know, accumulate as many fillies as you can. As you saw in the last chapter, I once traded uh, a Mickey, the only Mickey Mantle card I ever got in a pack of cards for a Johnny Callison straight up, um, you know, because I was not thinking of the the commercial value of these things. They were just, to me, personal uh, attachments to John Callison and the Phillies. And um, sort of the same with, with everything back then that I collected, whether it was autographed photos of politicians or, you know, autograph photos that I wrote for from Phillies and Eagles. Um, they were part of the whole sports experience for me. Yeah, yeah. And I actually envisioned these guys sitting in a locker room and signing these postcards to me. And, of course, I since learned that they're almost certainly not authentic autographs. They're probably a clubhouse boy signed these and mailed them out. Um, but to me, I used to sit and think, oh, you know, Robin Roberts, has got my letter and now he's thinking about how to respond to me and it felt very personal in a, a way that doesn't seem there anymore. Yeah, yeah. I made a I made a similarly ridiculous trade of baseball cards where I traded away <laughs> an, an entire year's worth of cards for I think one or two that I particularly <laughs> coveted. So, uh so I want to ask that was an interesting point. Do you think 
Do you think our relationship to the artifacts has changed, that we see them now as more commercial, um, something to be traded? Or is it the case that our relationship to the athletes has changed? I think both. I think because our relationship to the athlete has changed, um, that our relationship to the artifact has also changed. And it's odd because we we have absolutely no ability to just, you know, call Derek Jeter and go see him or, or shake his hand. And yet by virtue of his omnipresence Mm -hmm. in the culture, he seems accessible. It feels as if we know him in ways that I did not know players, uh, in the 1950s or early sixties. Um, you know, and I, I know I always have lots of Yankee fans in my class because you, you just can't avoid the damn people. Um, you know, but but they feel almost as if these players now yeah. are because of fantasy leagues and other things. They see them as commodities, okay, and okay. they they think that they know the value and worth of these people because they know their salaries and they know when they see them on television commercials and they know how many errors they made last year and so they sort of uh evaluate them as commodities and i was evaluating uh the phillies as sort of um idols i guess um nothing nothing they could have done would have let me down i i could never have imagined sitting in a ballpark and yelling at richie ashburn you suck but that's pretty commonplace now in a stadium. I, you know, I've seen quarterbacks from Penn State just vilified by Penn State fans on his way to the locker room. Um, so we've we've depersonalized um, the whole experience, even though the athletes themselves are probably even more remote. Yeah than they used to be. I mean, Richie Ashburn used to go to work in the off season at the Tasty Cake Factory. Um, you would never in a million years see Derek Jeter working uh, at a bar in Midtown Manhattan. Um, So that's, yeah, that's sort of why I think the artifacts also then have have changed. They become a um, commercial symbol of how we value them as commodities. Well, we're off to a good start because we've established our mutual dislike of the Yankees. So so it's going to be... It's going to be a good interview, I can tell. Okay, uh, let me uh, let me ask you. The main theme of your book, or what struck me as the main theme, is is sports and memory. And and I'll ask you this to to start. So so for us regular folk, and and you identify your, yourself as you know just an ordinary sports fan, an ordinary athlete. Athlete. So uh, we are athletes of no extraordinary ability. We're regular fans who collected baseball cards. We went to games. We had occasional brushes with great athletes. So how do you say sports functions in our memories? Wow. Hmm. That's probably one I should have worked into the book. <laughs> um, because, it, because it's interesting that I only – that I don't confront that directly because it's still so complex for me. Yeah, and you um, come at it from the edges throughout the book, which is why I posed it at the start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I do keep coming at it from the edges um, because I, I know one thing from telling stories in classes over the years and all is that 
my recollection and memories of sport are vastly different from first non-athletes who went to high school with me and just don't care at all about sports and to even people like Dennis Kubek who is you know the main focus of my high school wrestling chapter and has no recall of the story of which he is the centerpiece um and and I wonder about that it's sort of like why why is this why did this take on such huge dimensions in my mind and not in, in the minds of others how did sports insinuate itself into my life in a way that would compel me to remember nearly everything I've done on an athletic field as opposed to other people. I mean, the best athlete I went to high school with was Tommy Webb. Tom Webb never collected baseball cards. He never went to Phillies games. He did not watch other athletes. For him, the whole thing was that he played sport. Um you know, so you'd never find him out in the backyard saying, okay, now I'm Willie McCovey. He was always Tommy Webb. Um, and I always thought that that was interesting, too, and that he has not needed to compete in his older adult years, that he sort of did this, had enough of it. And while he still likes sport, he's, you know, he's not beholden to it in the same way that I am. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess some of that has to do with, you know, just individual upbringing. It was the, it was the one area in which my father was particularly comfortable and um, enjoyed life. It was the way in which I escaped the criticisms of my mother. It was the way that I differentiated myself from my egghead sister. Um, so it, it just always had this central place in my identity. And I think if it's part of your identity, the memories tend to be a little more vivid. And um, I, I guess they just over time sort of summoned me to think about why I wasn't forgetting any of these things that other people were forgetting. And if I wasn't forgetting them, why they must have been important. And I, I think all of that began to take shape once I got to Arizona State and, and worked with uh, Robert Osterhout, who was a highly um, involved participant, even at an advanced stage in, in decathlons. He was a, a very kind person who could defend sport in the most articulate ways that I no longer felt defensive about loving sport or having it be the core of my identity. And I, I think actually that's what eventually led me to think, well, maybe I can even write this stuff down and, and people might read it. So you had mentioned before when, when we first started the interview, the story surrounding your, your uh, high school wrestling teammate, uh, Dennis Kubek. And, uh, and so I'll ask you, and this gets into this question of, of sports and memory again. And uh, I'll ask you first to tell the story, and then I, then I have a couple questions about it. Okay. Well, uh, I was a 95-pounder and sort of uh, pathetically working my way through a season. And uh, we had a 180-pound teammate my junior year who was new, Dennis Kubek. And he was the opposite of me in, in a million ways, but... Um, he, he didn't take 
wrestling very seriously, but he was very good at it. And uh, one day or one night towards the end of the season, we traveled to a school that we had never heard of and never been to. And it turned out that wrestling was just the most important thing in that uh, school's sports hemisphere or sports uh, sphere. And so um, we were getting just trounced. Uh, the score was at one point forty eight to nothing, and Dennis Kubek went out to wrestle uh, their one hundred and eighty pounder who, as it turned out, was um a district champion and uh, still holds the record for pins at that school. Well, Dennis went through the match in these little fifteen second uh mini dramas because he smoked, then he was tired after about thirty seconds. <laughs> And when he found himself three minutes or halfway into the match, we all realized that he was just dead tired and and looked nearly, uh, really dead tired. I mean, he would fall to the mat, he would get out of bounds, and he would just lay there prostrate and gasping until the ref made him get up and move back to the center. So he did this over and over. The whistle would blow. Then he would get out of bounds. He would lay down. The ref would prod him to get back up. And the the match was taking forever. But then he was winning, which was driving the opponent insane. And he, he literally just could not take it. And the fans were getting um, really enraged. As it turned out, Denny held on to the, to the lead and won the match by a, a few points, and uh, then our heavyweight got pinned. So we had lost the match 52-3, to three. but the crowd was so enraged that we actually needed an escort from the police to get on our bus, um, which usually when you've lost 52-3, to three, <laughs> they'd like to keep you in town a little while longer, but um, they, they were just so mad, and... and I always had wondered for years um, why it was that Denny, you know, even felt compelled to finish the match. He was so tired. I don't know why he kept getting up at all, much less getting up and scoring enough points to win the match. Mm-hmm. And um, that w- it was had it was a very different experience than I got from my own matches, in which I frequently uh, found myself not caring enough to really give my my very best and it had sat in my conscience for 40 or 50 years until I finally went back and went to the library and started uh, looking at the microfilm of these matches which is one reason why I know I have the memory of that match correct because <coughs> I have the newspaper record of it um, but you know, I'm I'm looking at these old newspapers, and I'm I'm seeing myself in the in the losing column, and I'm seeing Denny Kubek in the winning column, and I'm wondering, you know, what was that about? Why why didn't I care enough? Why didn't I get up? Why did Denny get up? Um, and it really went to the heart of of why I was interested in sports to begin with, and and why different of us stick with certain things and and give up on others. Yeah, yeah. So I was interested you have the, you have this great line at the end of that chapter after telling that story uh and I'll, and I'll quote uh too bad too bad this episode this Denny's win too bad it came before the era of video cams and smartphones I would love to see it again. Then again, it's probably best I can't. And I'll ask you why why do you say that that it's you you research that match in newspapers, but then you decide, well, 
it's probably best that I can't watch it again. Uh, I think if I had the opportunity to watch it over and over again, that it might lose some of the really vivid aspects that I have attached to that match, and I might start seeing other things in it. Um, and I don't, I don't know what those things might be, mm-hmm. but I know that when I see a ground ball go through, you know, a Rod's legs for the sixth time in a day, um, it has a completely different feel than when I see it in the instant that it happens, um, and the emotional attachments that I have to it when it happens in the moment. You know, perhaps a ball's gone through a Rod's legs, and Somebody that I like better than the Yankees, which could be anybody, has won. Um, and so I'm emotionally invested in that memory of A-Rod and his heir, the way I'm sure Mets fans are in the the ball rolling through Bill Buckner's legs. And I think, you know, my attachment to Denny's uh, match was really an emotional one because it was near the end of my wrestling what would end up to be the end of my wrestling career. And I think in some way it, the the fact of him getting up and winning uh, prodded my conscience in ways that would seem much more avoidable if I was able to just look at that over and over. I, I might find that Denny, you know, didn't didn't do quite what I remembered him doing in terms of his um, investment in winning. Mm-hmm. Maybe if the ref hadn't prodded him, he wouldn't have gotten up. Um, and so maybe you know maybe I've made too much of the fact that Denny seemed to need to win, and and I might not I might not find that if I had the ability to to replay it over and over. And you know I I have I have nephews whose lives are nearly all documented in video. Um, You know, their parents took the camera out, everything they did, every play they were in, every sport they played, and the kids don't watch it. Um, They never sit and watch themselves. And I wonder if this um, over-documenting of lives, the idea of constantly sort of being under surveillance um, is connected also to the you know the whole generation in which we have helicopter parents and which we expect our lives to be esteemed yeah. by others. And one of these measures of the esteem is by having every moment that we breathe recorded and um, valued by parents, but not so much by ourselves. It's almost like my nephews don't want to see this. They they want to escape this constant um, parental supervision and the intrusion of adults into what, for us at least, were more spontaneous moments and more joyful moments of play. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so thinking about, I, I want to, something about with Denny Kubek and his, and his win, and you talk about how... Uh, he or you were much more invested in the work of being a wrestler than than he was. And uh, I want to ask you about, because it seems so much in commentary about sports, uh, it comes down to who wants to win. He won the match because he wanted it more. And in thinking back on that experience, does it is it 
cut against that whole notion that uh, uh, the success of an athlete is found in the in the will to win? Uh, at that time, I, I, I believed that. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much I believe that anymore since, yeah. you know, since I've read the sports gene and, and recognize yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the vast differences that we actually have in talent. It may just be that Dennis Kubek was a whole lot stronger and quicker than, than I ever would have been. Um, and no matter how much work I did, my record wasn't going to be the same as his. But back then... I did buy into that um, coaching notion that whoever wants it more is going to win, which was why this whole wrestling episode and my failure to win very often always felt so shameful to me. It always felt as if this was a, you know, a, a personal flaw that I just did not want to win badly enough. And um, so part of my examination of that whole issue is, is trying to figure out was was that that I just didn't want to win, or did I just not care enough about wrestling to begin with? Did I care more in other sports? Did I try to win more often? Um, and, and I think it's um, something that I just bought into back then. Yeah. That you know, if you're losing, it's because you're a loser. You're not you're not trying. Um, it's not that, you know, you have a poor sense of balance or, you know, you have limitations in terms of certain activities versus others. You, you, you just don't want it badly enough. So another, another story that you tell in the book from your childhood uh, is when uh, you and your father went to the Little League World Series and uh, Jackie Robinson, who at that point uh, had been retired, Jackie Robinson was there. And uh, can you tell us what happened in that in that story? Well, uh, my dad took us up to Williamsport, and uh, I wanted to go down to uh, field level. And so we walked down, and back then uh, the grandstands were not as grand, and you could <laughs> al- almost get right up to the dugout. And when we it wasn't broadcast on ESPN back then. No, it was not on ESPN. <laughs> I don't even think it was on tape delay on Wide World of Sports. Um, although I do kind of remember seeing Levittown at one point in the Little League World Series, which was about that time frame. But at any rate, I, you know, I approached this Japanese dugout, and my father said there's Jackie Robinson, who had been invited by the hosts, and he was uh, in his blazer, and he had his beautiful silver hair. And he looked his age, which was you know, probably uh, in his mid to late 50s at that time. And my father said, you need to go... Uh, talk to Jackie Robinson and shake his hand. Well, right then the Japanese little leaguers came out of their dugout and I had no interest in Jackie Robinson. I wanted to go see those Japanese little leaguers and have them autograph my program. So I missed my chance to shake Jackie Robinson's hand. And I used that episode in introducing um, how much impact Jackie Robinson had on my life unknowingly because to me as a 11 year old little ligger uh, I never thought that there had been a time when professional baseball was segregated I didn't even know Jackie Robinson's history I had black teammates I you know 
played in a league that was heavily integrated, and I followed Major League Baseball, which by that time had been uh, thoroughly integrated. And to my mind, uh, Japanese little leaguers were far, far more exciting and exotic than Jackie Robinson. And I, I think he had so wonderfully integrated the game that many of us never even grew up questioning whether or not an African-American belonged on a ball field next to a, a white. Um, and that was quite a statement because the transformation came uh, really pretty quickly when you consider that uh, 67 years had passed between the end of Moses Fleetwood Walker's career, the first black major leaguer, and the beginning of Jackie Robinson's, to say that within you know, a few years of Robinson's retirement, the game had been so thoroughly integrated that it did not even seem out of the ordinary to a a young child was was quite remarkable. Yeah, so that incident, I think, was 1962, right? Which would have been just 15 years after, uh, am I getting my math right? Yeah, 15 years after he began with the Dodgers and really just, you know, six or seven years after he finished his career. Um. Yeah, you have my, a st- my my father was certainly aware of it, but but I was not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have a striking you have a striking sentence in that striking line in that chapter where you write uh, perhaps Robinson's biggest contribution to my life was my lack of interest, and and you write that not in any sense that you were dismissing him, but uh, um, you di- you didn't see the need to go up and meet right. Jackie Robinson. Right. I th- I think I have a, a sentence in there about. Um, you know, what would be remarkable about seeing an African-American playing professional baseball? In my mind, to an 11-year-old, who in their right mind didn't want to play professional baseball? Um, and so, yes, my I, I just had a lack of interest in the fact that this was an African-American and certainly no interest in thinking that he was a pioneer. I just thought this was... The nat- this was the natural inclination of every kid in America mm-hmm. um, play play major league baseball. Mm-hmm. So that that chapter is an, an especially rich one, and uh, and you have a number of topics that you address in in that chapter. And one of the things you you do address the issue of race race, but you also talk about the issue of of character and Robinson's reputation as a man of character. And uh, one thing that you write, and which was also striking. Uh, and I quote, sports, of course, don't build character. They reveal it. And and I'll ask you to uh, explain what you mean by that. Well, I, th- I think that's that's certainly not uh, anything I can take credit for. It's, a, it's an old saw uh, among people that, that look at sports for, for more than an instant, um, even though most Americans would choose to believe that sports still build character. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's obviously not true. I mean, if if sports built character, then the longer you were in a sport, the better your character would be, and we can easily see that that's not the case. Um, where was I just reading the other day about, uh, oh, uh, Buster Posey, apparently, uh, you know, failing to shake hands or autograph kids things after a ball game just breezing past them um you know it's a comforting notion for parents but it's it's obviously not true and uh, all you have to do is read the sort of that agate print in the newspaper every morning to see how many college football players have uh, been suspended or arrested or 
you know, <clears throat> what international soccer star has been involved in a game fix. Um, I think it's pretty obvious when you think about all the kids who start at the bottom in peewee soccer or Little League baseball, and you see who gets to the high school and the college levels, and you realize, you know, this is a quarter of the people that we began with. And if sports teaches people to be persistent and determined, what happened to those other three quarters? Every year, 100 kids would show up for wrestling practice on the first day, and by the second week, there'd be 20. So why didn't sport build character in the other 80? In what way did it fail them? Well, it simply revealed that there were 20 people who already had that persistence and determination, and that was what was being revealed. Um, and I actually think that's a a good enough thing to to hang your hat on. I don't see any reason why you have to say it builds it, but mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but people are very uncomfortable with the idea that it doesn't build character. Yeah, and I was going to say that's something we still hear repeated from coaches, from from parents who try to justify the amount of time that they invest in their kids' sports experiences. Right from school boards, and of course, it's still the it's the primary raison d'etre for intercollegiate athletics. Um, you know, take away that character building and the leadership piece, and what are you left with? Um, you know, why are we spending huge sums of money at our institutions to stage something that has very little attachment to education if it doesn't have some other positive attribute? So I know here at Towson, at least, our presidents continue not only to pretend that sports build character, they actually say that phrase in their inauguration addresses, you know, that we will continue to have intercollegiate athletics so long as it builds ca the character of our scholar athletes. Um, and I, I, again, I think it, it underlines one of the book's themes, which is we are deathly afraid of play and fun in this country, and particularly when we begin to find it at... Um, adult levels and at the level of elite play like we have in colleges. So we need some sort of facade, something that, that covers that up and makes us feel better about it. Mm -hmm. And you certainly can can hear that every week in the NCAA's ads that, you know, there are 600,000 NCAA athletes and nearly all of us are going pro in something other than sports. So we can all breathe this sigh of relief and think, oh, thank God, you know, we, we'd hate it if they were all going pro in sports because sports are fun and obviously they're they're trivial and the toy department of life in so many ways. So related to that, I want to ask, so, so you teach in a department of kinesiology and I'm sure you've had many, many, many students over the years who have entered uh, the coaching profession. And something you write, and, and we get a, a hint of, of your view from what you just said, something that you write in the book is the coaching profession is more than ever a flock of sheep. And, uh, you know, so first I'll ask you what, what you mean by that. And two, I would have to think that, that uh, um, you would make a lot of enemies perhaps within your department or among your former students with a statement like that. <laughs> um, well, the students themselves um 
are already in the flock. Those those who are uh, those who who are aspiring to become coaches uh, basically don't listen very closely to me. Uh, they're much more attuned to what their past coaches have said to them. Um, and these past coaches and the cliches that the coaches work under um, seem to be the you know the pass keys to getting into the profession. Um, sports. Because they are fun, because they are have been so self-reflexively, you know, just defensive for a hundred years now, um, has trained coaches and others to fear um, being different. Um, you know, they buy into the cliches, they believe in them, uh, they spout them forever, and those who wish to become part of sports uh, need to sort of join this cult. And actually, uh, uh, aside from the students, I don't really find many coaches uh, who who would disagree with me. Um, I have a very good relationship, actually, with the coaches here at Towson. I've just been asked to be the guest coach for one of the football (laughs) games this fall. And, And I find it ironic because... Coaches themselves do not, um, if you use the word cult, it, um, it can, you know, it can raise a few hackles, but when you explain what the word cult means and the, you know, the hierarchy of power and the us against them and all of those things, coaches sort of not along. Yeah, that's sort of, that's sort of the way we operate. Um, and, and they're not very, um, upset about that, where they don't try to run away from that or hide it. They just view this as being a very positive cult. So they're not drinking poison uh, Kool-Aid and and going off to see Haley's Comet, but they are, you know, in their minds, they are in the cult that trains young people to be winners in life and better people, you know, against all evidence. So they really don't care if, if I'm saying it or not. Uh, they think I'm just sort of pointing out the obvious, and they just view it a little differently. I I see this as being very limited for sports. They think it's very um, wonderful. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned this idea of sports as a cult, and I was going to ask about that. Uh, in your book, you refer... Uh, to the uh, theologian Michael Novak and his his book The Joy of Sports and uh, right. and in that book Novak uh, writes about the spiritual the uh, transcendental even the religious side of sports and and sees that as a positive but but you have a much different take and it's it's not simply about a cult as a process of indoctrination you you see it as having real negative effects. Well, I do because I think it um I think it binds athletes in a way that keeps them from fully appreciating what their potential is, from fully appreciating about you know, fully appreciating what sports could be at their best, which is, you know, the only institution in modern life that pursues measures and celebrates human excellence for its own sake. And I think every time you start to get away from that, this this point of excellence that can be measured and pursued for its own sake, every time you say that it 
does something else like prepare you for real life or build your character or pro- provide money for you, what you begin to do is diminish sport because you're saying it's not really important unless we can attach it to some sort of real world significance. And so, yes, that is the opposite. I do not see it as... Or spiritual significance, as Novak would argue. Right. I do not see it as needing to be... And and I I don't totally disagree with the points that Novak is making. I, I guess for many people there can be a spiritual component. But again, I think when he's saying that sport that sports primary virtue is the way it in which it can become ritual and um, important in a spiritual sense uh, diminishes the fact that it's available to anyone who wants to pursue it for the sake of itself. I mean, it, it is wholly intrinsic and all those attachments, whether they're commercial or spiritual or, you know, social are ways in which we deny our fundamental human natures as people who love to play and who seek excellence. And I, several times in the book, I use Roger Bannister as just this, you know, sort of wonderful example of this, a guy who, you know, with his legs and lungs on fire comes around the last turn in that first four minute mile and is thinking to himself, this is my one chance in life to do something supremely well, uh, just to see if it's possible, just to see if a, a human can run a mile in four minutes. And, um, you know, so everything that we use to cover up that intrinsic excellence and say, oh, yeah, and it's also spiritual or it's also, you know, a way that we keep our kids thinner or it's a way that we make them leaders or it's a way we teach them time management essentially is saying sports isn't important enough in its own right. We've, we've got to dump something else on top of this um, to make it defensible. And I, I think that's the fundamental difference that I have, not, not just with Novak, but with most people who are currently involved with sport and, in fact, you know, may have it as their life's work. You've been listening to an interview with David Zhang about his book, I wore Babe Ruth's hat, field notes from a life in sport, published in 2015 by the University of Illinois Press. New Books in Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects like religion, politics, and biography. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books in Sports on Twitter at New Books Sports, or friend us on Facebook at facebook.com slash newbooksandsports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week.